Hey, I wanted to give you a heads up here on something that's coming up for our Edible Alpha podcast. We're actually gonna do an Edible Alpha live podcast event. We wanted to do it in March and then COVID happened. So it's now gonna happen in December, better late than never. On the evening of December 8th, we're gonna have a virtual cocktail hour because I think we are all ready for virtual cocktails. In conjunction with that, we're going to have folks from Lost Creek Farm, which is a farm in West Virginia. The folks who own Lost Creek Farm were on Anthony Bourdain's show not long before he passed away. And they are storytellers about farming and food. And so they're gonna storytell and we're gonna have cocktails. And that's gonna launch us into Edible Alpha Live on the 9th. I'm going to be interviewing three famous founders in the world of food and agriculture, particularly in the world of impact food and agriculture. So I wanted to showcase opportunities for impact investors to make a difference in our food system. The founders that I'm gonna be interviewing include Paul Willis. He is one of the founders of Nyman Ranch Meats and Nyman was the first brand to elevate humane practices as a foundational pillar for their brands. I'm also gonna be interviewing David Miller, who is the founder of Iroquois Valley Farmland REIT. That is a REIT that invests in land that is transitioning from conventional into organic and regenerative agriculture. And David took that fund all the way to be a public fund so you and I can invest in it, which is very hard to do and very unusual. And then the last famous founder I'm going to be interviewing is a guy named Gary Zimmer. Gary is the founder of a company called Midwest Bioag, which you would know if you're in regenerative agriculture, you wouldn't know the company necessarily as a consumer because they do inputs into regenerative farming systems, basically natural inputs that help soil recover since we've done such a great job of depleting our soil over the years. So Gary is also the person who wrote a book in conjunction with his daughter, Leilani, who will also be with us, called Biological Farming. And that is the intellectual foundation for a lot of what has come to be known as regenerative agriculture. We'll have the opportunity for you to ask questions of these people too, which will be super fun. And then I'm also going to be showcasing 10 younger companies that are in various stages of doing very impactful things for our regenerative future. Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship Program is one of them. I have lots, well, a total of 10 um, amazing enterprises that I've found in my work around the country that I really wanted to showcase for you. If you want to register and join us, go to the Food Finance Institute website or the Edible Alpha website, either one, and you'll see a link to register for either the night before our party night on, on the 8th or the, the live podcast event on the 9th or both. And we look forward to seeing you. Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Well, hey, Joe, thanks for joining us this morning. Well, thanks so much for having me. We're glad to have you here. Um, 
I think the way we should start is just have you introduce yourself and the DGA to our audience. Sure, sure. So I'm Joe Tamandel. Uh, I'm a dairy farmer in north central Wisconsin. I grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, I taught high school agriculture for a few years and then came back and, and purchased a farm about 20 years ago. Uh, so that is that is what we do. You know, in basically growing up in the rural community and going through college and even teaching high school, you know, just always looked at what our rural communities look like, what our dairy industry is looking like, and, you know, where our farms are going. And you know, we, we saw them disappearing and, and trying to put a thumb on it and say, well, why? What are the main things that are happening and why are they disappearing? And you know, there's a variety of different reasons. Uh, but, you know, one of the key reasons is that, you know, it's very hard to teach a farmer uh, somebody that understands all the pieces of farming, the whole biological system and, and everything day to day, it, it's hard to do that in a classroom. You know, we can teach, you know, somebody that may know a component of farming, whether it's an agronomist or whether it's a nutritionist or, you know, uh, and that works on a dairy, you know, directly with a college or veterinary work or anything. Uh, but to teach a full-blown farmer uh, that, that can run a system like this really takes a hands-on type of approach. Uh, so in looking at that and looking at the success of apprenticeship programs in the trade and the skilled labor uh, over, boy, it's been going on for 100 years uh, in Wisconsin, uh, you know, we decided, the, I, think, I think registered apprenticeship is a fit for uh, dairy farming and for training dairy. Uh, so in about 2011, we worked with the Bureau of Apprenticeship Standard uh, in Wisconsin and rolled out what is basically the first apprenticeship in farming in the nation, uh, and it was the dairy grazing apprenticeship. Uh, and it's a two-year, 4,000-hour registered apprenticeship. 3,700 hours are paid, basically working on the dairy, uh, and we approve dairy farms that have a managed grazing component to them. Uh, and the managed grazing component is key because from an economic standpoint, it really allows uh, you know, new individuals to get into dairying, uh, and because there isn't quite the overhead, uh, you know, we're utilizing a system that doesn't take uh, as much equipment and sometimes not as much housing either. Uh, so individuals, we've got that natural economic on-ramp, you know, into the dairy industry, utilizing the managed grazing systems. Uh, so that's one of the key reasons why we focused on that one. Uh, and then within the apprenticeship, there's also 300 hours of related instruction, which are really the, you know, the why behind the how-tos of what we're learning on the ground. Uh, so the intent of the program is, you know, to really create that platform, you know, to identify individuals that want to get involved in dairy, uh, particularly managed grazing dairy, uh, and give them those pathways that they can pursue based on workforce training and education and networking. Uh, and then the other half of the equation is to create that platform for existing farmers that are looking for key people to come into their farm, to work as, you know, managers, to work into equity earning situations or full-on farm transitions. Uh, and we've had a number of those in all of those categories. And, and it's really exciting when you, when you get somebody uh, that really didn't think they'd have a chance to dairy someday and they meet a dairy farmer that brings them through this apprenticeship in a, in a full-on paid workforce training program, 
uh, and then they ultimately end up getting into an equity earning position and then into a farm transition role. Uh, so that's really, you know, some of the some of the outcomes that we're looking for. So uh, the DGA, we didn't want it to be a, a flash in the pan, and we knew what was going on here in Wisconsin. Uh, it's happening in other states. So in 2015, uh, we did register the program with the Federal Department of Labor, uh, and we're in 15 different states, and we've got about 200 training farms approved right now, and there's 45 apprentices actively in the program. So that's, that's a little bit of a history on, on the dairy grazing apprenticeship. That's awesome. So I think for our listeners, um, we, we need, it would be helpful to back up and talk about what managed grazing is, because I'm not sure everybody really understands what it is. Yeah, well, absolutely. So managed grazing is really where you're, you're taking your cows uh, and you're sending them out to harvest their own grass for as many days of the year as you can. So you're rotating them through paddocks of permanent grass, permanent ground cover. Uh, they can be rotated every you know, two, three times a day on some of the dairies. Uh, but these are, it's a dairy management system where when there's grass, and when there's sunshine, uh, and it may be 120 days out of the year, it may be 200-plus uh, days out of the year, uh, depending on where you're located. Uh, but we're really trying to utilize our cows to you know, do as much of the forage harvesting and even the manure spreading uh, as possible. Uh, so it's, it's a much more of a, a natural way to do this. I mean, basically, you're looking at grass have roots, you know, cows have feet, so might as well send the cows out there. Uh, and, it, and it really kind of sinks in. You know, when, when we started dairying, we, just, we started with about 35 cows and 80 acres of land. And um, uh, a neighbor's land came up for rent. It was another 125 acres. And when we looked at that 125 acres, if we farm that the way, <laughs> the way we were taught in college, uh, we would have gone in there. Uh, and most likely tilled it, uh, we would have dissed it, we would have seeded it, uh, we would have uh, uh, packed it, uh, we would have then, you know, put fertilizer on, you know, allowed the crop to grow, we would have come in, uh, we would have uh, harvested the crop, or let's just say it was hay, we would have cut it, we would have merged it, uh, we would have put it, uh, either chopped it or else in baleage, and we would have driven it around the, the section to the farm, and we would have stored it in a storage facility that cost plenty of money. Uh, and then we would have basically taken it out of that storage facility. And we would have fed it to all the cows. And then we would have taken all their manure and drove that around the block and spread it out onto those fields. And that costs a lot of money. That burns a lot of fuel. Uh, and that takes a lot of time. So when we looked at that 125 acres, we thought, you know, for $250 worth of investment fence, uh, why don't we just send the cows over here and let them do all of it? Uh, so that, in essence, is really what managed grazing is. So we sent the cows over, you know, allowed them to harvest the forage, bring the milk back to the barn, and leave their manure there. And as a result, we didn't have to run all that fuel through equipment. We didn't have the expense of it. Uh, and, um, and we didn't have to till all the soil. You know, it's, it's relatively rolling land. You know, we would have lost a fair amount of topsoil because of it. So uh, this, we've run this land for, I think, 18 years now, 
Uh, and, um, you know, the majority of it has never been tilled. It, it just continued developing it with cows, uh, mm-hmm. much like the prairies were developed. Uh, and, and the incredible organic matter and topsoil that was developed in them. So we're really trying to replicate those natural systems on, on these dairy farms. So a so couple of things about that. So it, this system, I think people think, well, they just put their cows out, but there's, you're moving them, you know, they're giving them a specific amount of pasture and then you move them, right? So there's some thought that goes into this. This isn't just opening, you know, 100 acres and letting them run around, right? Correct, correct. You know, that's why we call it managed Manage grazing, yeah, manage intensive yeah. grazing, because it is. I mean, you really got to, it, it's active management. No two months are the same. No two years are the same or two seasons are the same. You're always watching weather patterns. You're watching field growth and, and uh, forage growth. And you're always looking ahead for the next you know, 30 days or so because you want the cows to go into the paddock when it's at the ultimate optimum growth stage. So you still got to you know, get good feed and good forage into these animals. Uh, so you don't want to have forage that's way over mature where they don't eat enough of it or they don't get enough uh, nutrients out of it. Uh, so there's really an art to this whole thing by staggering your whole farm at different growth rates. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if, if you've got a 40-day rotation where it takes basically 40 days from the first paddock that you put them in, to send them through all the other ones before you get back to that first paddock, you almost you really need forty different growth levels uh, of of your paddocks so that they're always hitting the optimal you know grass you know growth density and nutrition in there. And and if you do this right, and if you rest your grasses, uh, you can really increase the productivity of these actual fields uh, and. Um, uh, and make them a lot more productive uh, over time. So when you you talk about that 100 acres, did you go back in and plant different forages? Yeah, so what we'll do is uh, we'll utilize the cows to come in, and a lot of times just by putting the appropriate cow pressure on. So if you put density of stocking on, you know, fairly dense, and you get the cows off right away, uh, you can really just through doing that by adding the fertility to it, uh, and giving the grasses enough rest, you can really pull out what is a lot of native grasses uh, as well as legumes that are in the, in the soil bank. But then, yes, we do go in with a no-till drill then uh, many times in the, in the spring or late summer, early fall if conditions are right, and we will introduce newer grasses and newer varieties uh, and, and update them. So, in many cases, we'll go over, oh, we can go over at least 25 to, to, to 35% of the farm every year with a no-till drill, uh, just introducing, you know, more grasses and legumes into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're managing the pasture too, right? It's part of the management thing. A- absolutely, absolutely. And, and you're really, you're managing, you know, the, the pasture, the soil, you know, everything around it. I mean, even the wildlife uh, is involved in it, but... But you're really, and you're managing the cows. So it is a real biological system. I mean, you're watching, you know, the cow needs, the cow health, what stage of lactation they're in, you know, what type of uh, pounds of dry matter they need and, and what kind of a quality of feed that they need. Uh, and you're 
you're marrying that right up with what your pasture productivity is and, and what your plant and legume growth is on that pasture. Yeah. Yeah. So cows are, you, you milk a cup, what, two, two times a day? We milk two times a day. Correct. Okay. And that's typical for grazers, right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's very typical. You know, in fact, some of the grazers are, you know, moving to a, a very, a much less intense system uh, and running 100% grass where they'll only milk once a day uh, mm. for a period of time. And, and some of that, I think there's been some studies in New Zealand uh, that have done that, and some of the all-grass farms are doing it. Uh, this, this whole managed grazing system, you know, this isn't necessarily new. The intensity of how it's managed is newer. That's the mm-hmm. thing that we're always growing and evolving, and that's where the technologies are, uh, is, is more intensively managing this and getting better at it. A lot of this is coming from, you know, New Zealand and Ireland and, you know, some other countries uh, where this is their primary means of producing milk. Uh, and coincidentally, these are some of the lowest cost uh, milk producing uh, countries that are out there. Uh, right. So, you know, I think there's something really to take a look at as, as you look at the sustainability of a business and the future of your business just from an economic standpoint, you know, as we looked at it too, you know, let's, let's look at the most efficient one uh, that can hopefully withstand the most economic flexibility and the upturns and the downturns and, and can weather this stuff. Uh, and, and that's the other spot where managed grazing came into this thing. So, so not only economically, uh, but environmentally and sustainably uh, is, is why we chose the system. Right, right. Yeah, when I did Tara's Way, the, the, you know, the whey protein market, I mean, New Zealand and Ireland were big competitors, right? And it, it's just such an, it was always interesting to me how, um, how efficient their whole industry is when it's a grass-based industry, right? In our country, you're like, oh, yeah, well, that can't be efficient, except that the powerhouse dairy countries use these systems. They do. They do. And, yeah. and they are, you know, they've learned how to use them. They've learned how to even balance some of the production because many of these systems are relatively seasonal. And right. what I mean by seasonal is that, you know, the cow produces that milk for about 305 days out of the year, and then they get a rest for two months uh, mm-hmm. before they have a calf, and then they produce milk again. And in many of these grazing systems, what we try to do is, you know, we try to to give the cow the rest during the off season when the grass isn't growing well or when it's winter uh, and when we have to feed stored feed uh, because we want them to have the most productive part of their milk production, you know, year of their lactation during the most productive part of our pastures. So mm-hmm. we're, we're starting all these cows, you know, right before the grass starts. So it does give a bit of a seasonality in the production. So we'll produce the majority of our milk, you know, May, June, July, August, September, and then it, it tails off quite a bit through the winter months. So, you know, a lot of these countries have figured out how to deal with that and whether it's the, the products they make or, you know, just, um, you know, how the whole production processing system goes. Right, right. I mean, does New Zealand have the same seasonality that we do? Opposite, you know, time, opposite months of the year because they're in the Southern Hemisphere. But, I mean, they have winter there, right? Right, right. 
Right, you know, and probably they don't have as, as severe of a winter as we're going to see in Wisconsin here, but uh, you know, right. they, they do have uh, you know the off season, uh, mm-hmm. and it is yes. Yeah, so they're a lot. They're very much seasonal also, uh, mm-hmm. and that's where we learn a lot of just everything from uh, you know uh, uh, pasture management systems to breeding systems to you know you know they're they're dealing with that uh, a much more. It's much more the status quo. On right. Right. They've even wasn't the movable electronic fence. Wasn't that um, developed in New Zealand? You know, I think it was either New Zealand. I I believe it's New Zealand, maybe Ireland. But there's some there's some pretty cool things out there when you start looking at technology. uh, You know, out on on some of these managed grazing farms. Uh, So yeah, it's it's fun to watch. Yeah, because I think people. I think it's important because people think dairy grazing is just like, you know, your my what my grandpa did, right? Like let the cows out, right? But it's actually so much more thought and actually technology and things that go into managed grazing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It 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 isn't, you know, the old it isn't your grandpa's grazing necessarily. Right. It it really yeah. isn't. You know, we've come a long way uh in in how we manage these animals and how we manage the forages. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, there's an industry that, that probably needs to be developed even more around it. And there's a, there's a ton of potential in it, uh, mm-hmm. because you know, there's an incredible and untapped potential for managed grazing. And, yeah. uh, yeah. and I think that's, that's some of the things that we're focusing on here. Right. So now the cows come into the barn, they come in a couple times a year and, um, even, the barns are different. I mean, they don't have to be, right? But but like a New Zealand parlor for milking is different than a traditional tie stall barn here, right? You know, it is. Yeah, you know, when you take a look at the whole management dynamic is, you know, animal needs are still going to be animal needs, whether you've got them in, you know, a confined, you know, uh, a system uh, or whether you've got a managed grazing system. We still got, they got the same phys- physiological needs. However, you know, a lot of the management practices and systems with a, with a grazing type of dairy, they are a bit different. Uh, you know, so, so that's why when we created the apprenticeship program, you almost need a different profile of labor. So mm-hmm. when we take a look at the way a lot of the farms are put together and, and that these are these larger farms that are scaled because they are scaled the way they are. And because, you know, animals are, I mean, we're, we're really controlling the environment. A lot of our large, large, you know, uh, uh, conventional dairies, you know, they're, they're kept inside. Uh, you know, we've got uh, a temperature, you know, we can control a lot more. We can very closely control the diet and keep things very, very consistent in, when you do that, uh, you've got a system, uh, a certain set of procedures and processes, and and uh, and people have got their own particular roles within the system, uh, and and it it does, and it's a very successful system. I mean, we you know the U.S. has really got it figured out on on how to have animals be very productive in this type of a system, uh, because you can have one person that comes in and and they're in charge of nutrition and another person in charge of milking systems and milk quality. Uh, and you can come in and have eight and 10 hour shifts where you work five days a week, eight and 10 hours, regardless what the weather may be. Uh, on the managed grazing dairies, a lot of them are a little bit smaller. 
because they're they're limited a bit in size by how far a cow can walk. Uh, because you want to get a considerable amount of feed in those cows that they're harvesting on their own, you know, you know, fifty percent plus. Uh, so, so they are still a little bit different. So the primary, the the labor profile is different, uh, and it's typically around a family type of unit or a family and you know a couple full time equivalents for you know one hundred and fifty cows uh, is all it is. So that's where that labor has actually got to be able to do a lot more of the jobs and the projects on the farm. So when it comes to the milking systems, uh, these they need to be fast and they need to be efficient. And uh, even the parlors, we've taken a lot of ideas from New Zealand. So parlors on and milking systems on a lot of the grazing farms uh, are bigger than a lot of the very large dairies. So you'll see a parlor that can milk 100 cows an hour for 150 cow dairy because we really want to get them in. We want to get the cows milked and we want to get them right back out to the grass. Uh, and usually the people that are milking are also the people that are out moving the fence. They're the ones, uh, you know, doing, uh, the regular maintenance, uh, and, and work around the farm and the other feeding. So it needs to move along at a pretty efficient pace. So the parlors are sized quite a bit different, uh, and quite a bit larger. Uh, than than you would normally see just to keep the processes moving. Right. So they all so they come in and out pretty quickly. And and um, uh, typical grazing dairies are are they supplementing their the feed? So it's grass plus a supplement. Is that how that looks on dairy grazing? Yeah. Dairies? Yeah. Yeah. Typically, mm-hmm. and some depends a little bit on the market. You know, there are some markets that just want a hundred percent grass or forages. Uh, mm-hmm. So they may not be supplementing as much. They may get, you know, uh, 80%, 90% of, you know, all their dry matter, the daily, the needs of the cow from, from grass. Uh, they may get a little dry hay or something like that up at the, at the bunk when they're coming to or from the parlor uh, just to keep, keep always feet in front of them. Uh, and then there are some other dairies, too, that depending on their land base, uh, they may be running... You know, for an organic standard, for example, uh, you just need to run 30 uh, uh, percent of dry matter coming from uh, grazing. Uh, so that means that the other 70 percent is coming from, you know, a TMR feed bunk, stored feed, uh, or whatever it may be. Uh, a lot of the the grazing type of profiles, you know, they're running 50 to 70 percent of their dry matter is coming from a pasture. Uh, so okay. yes, yeah, so that other 25-30% is coming in from, you know, stored feed. It can also be, you know, grains uh, that are brought in just to keep the energy profile there uh, because many times these pastures, they are so high in protein uh, and, and you need to get a little bit more energy into them too to, to balance some of that out. Hmm. Interesting. So, okay, so so now we, we talked about the feed and... Um, uh, so in the winter though, are they, do you feed hay in the winter? Like how do you get your forages in the winter yeah, in, a, so in a place when, like Wisconsin? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a good question. And, and what we're doing is so, so let's just say, so we've got 320 acres to graze on one of my dairies here. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've got, you know, between 175 and 200 cows. Uh, what happens in May, June, uh, and even sometimes into July, depending on the year, is uh, the grass grows so fast, and in 
order to stagger the farm so it all is in the same growth rate, you know, the cows can't keep up to it, so we end up harvesting parts of it. Uh, so that whole, you know, we may harvest, uh, you know, half of the farm for that first round. So there's, there's 150 acres there that we may take, and then we'll use that for winter feed and stored feed uh, is mm-hmm. what we'll do. Uh, right. So then the wintertime, they'll get that in the form of either, you know, chopped silage or baleage or dry hay. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, because we do focus so much on grazing on our farms and just a lot of the profitability of and the economics of grazing, if, if a cow can walk to it, I want the cow to harvest that feed. So right. we have stocked our farms pretty heavy so that most anything that is in reach of a cow, we want that cow harvesting that and eating the forage off it. So as a result, we do buy in a fair amount of feed uh, for the off-season months, and we'll buy that in in, in uh, round or square bales or silage, uh, and then we'll also bring in some grain also for the uh, you know for the cows too. Mm-hmm. And then in the winter, so we have nasty winters here. Um, do you keep your cows indoors when it gets really bad outside, or how does that work? Yes, yes. So the cows have, you know, on our farms here, they've got uh, feeding strips, concrete feeding strips. They've got uh, barns, three-sided barns and and freestall type of barns that they'll come into, you know, for these nasty days. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, I mean, right now, you know, we're still open. Uh, You know, we don't have a ton of snow on the ground. We can just have a dusting right now. But but cows can still go out. Uh, so we still send them out. They can eat a little bit. They're getting the majority of their feed up by a feeding strip, but we'll still send them out, you know, just exercise. They can get out. They can lay outside on the field. They stay cleaner. It just they're not all packed into a barn. Uh, but right. once it, you know, really starts snowing and it gets cold, uh, yep, they all come into barns. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, it, I mean, it seems like this is, I'm going to call it a lifestyle for this cow that um, is more is less stressful on them because it's a more natural way of being for a cow. Right. And I my guess is that that would translate into better health outcomes for cows. Yeah, you know, I I I think so. Yes. You know, we our cows will last a long time. You know, they're they're more athletic cow. You know, they aren't as big as the, the standard cow either because they are walking. They're walking, they're moving, they're outside plenty. Um, but, uh, you know, they can last, you know, quite a while. You know, with 10, 12 years, um, you know, you can, it's not uncommon to have a cow around. Um, hmm. You don't see that in a lot of the more intense, uh, you know, management type of systems necessarily that are really, really pushing for production. Um, so yeah, it, it, it does seem to work well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So good for the animals, good for the land. Um, and, and let's talk about some of the environmental impacts of grazing, right? Cause I think people are starting to realize how, um, farms could be a, um, you know, could help us mitigate climate change through carbon sequestration, for example. So, what are the possibilities there for grazing? Well, absolutely. You know, just because we're dealing with permanent ground cover, you know, so many of our environmental uh, challenges within our agriculture industry really come from tilling soil and exposed soil. That's where wind can blow it off, water can run it off, 
you know, that's where, you know, and, and when water washes soil off, you know, that's where your phosphorus, that's where some of your manure can get run off, uh, and that's where you have your excessive nutrient loading uh, in some of our uh, streams and watersheds uh, that we're seeing and that we're dealing with. Uh, so, you know, if when you can keep that ground covered so stuff isn't running off on it, that you can handle these two and three inch, you know, per hour rains, and, and we're seeing them, yeah. uh, you know, that's a huge deal. So just by the nature of having that soil covered uh, is, is a huge, huge natural uh, and environmental benefit. And then the other reality is it, it stores a lot of carbon. You know, we lose a lot of carbon when we turn that soil and when, when we release it. Not only are we burning carbon uh, by, you know, the tractors that we're utilizing and the tillage tools that we're using, uh, but, um, you know, we're, we're emitting it when we, when we roll that soil. So, you know, by keeping this covered, by allowing that root mass to keep building and, and keep dying off and, and re, you know, reinvigorating itself, uh, you know, we are storing and sequestering a considerable amount of carbon also. Right. I mean, I, a couple of years ago, we had such a terribly wet, cool, downright cold spring, right? Around where I live the, in southern Wisconsin, you're further north, but it was hard for farmers to even get into plant, right? And that, that's got to be a, a situation that, I mean, would not be nearly as difficult for your grazing farms, right? Correct, correct. You know, uh, these farms, you know, granted, it's still a challenge. You know, you still got to, right. you know, manage cows through it. And, and you know, we've, we've done a better job on, on creating better lanes and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, cow movement type of systems. Uh, and you still need to mitigate, you know, that intensive rains. Uh, but, you know, we've got a soil that, you know, is able to hold a lot more water. And we've got cover on top of that soil that, that holds everything in place. So, you know, yeah, we're, I think we're, we're insulated a uh, considerable amount more than, you know, an exposed uh, annual crop type of a field. Right, right. And, and, you know, for our listeners who are from other parts of the country, um, our climate change um, looks to be excess moisture, not a deficit of moisture, right? That's what we're looking at as, as the climate changes. It, yes, yes, yes. Typically, and, and typically, you know, my area up here too, you know, knock on wood, and I'll probably set us up for a three-year drought here, but, but <laughs> really we're, we're a little wetter. Uh, we got a little bit of a heavier soils up where I'm at, and we're a little bit wetter. Uh, mm -hmm. but, um, and that's why it, it actually it's a great area to, to graze cattle uh, because mm -hmm. of that too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I, people talk about... Um, you know, I don't know, the, the debate about whether we should be doing meat and dairy, right, and whether it's environmentally sound to be doing that. And one of the things that I heard somebody say that I thought was really wise was there are there are places where we really can't, we really shouldn't be growing anything, right? Like it, it's too steep or, the, you know, the too, too much runoff. And, and the other thing was that cows actually can eat grass, they can turn grass into nutrition and because they have ruminant stomachs. Um, and we can't do that as humans, right? So they, they have a function in an ecological system, nutritionally speaking, that, that humans can't 
fulfill, right? Because we don't have those stomachs. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're a key to that whole, you know, chain. Uh, yeah. and, and for sure, you know, we've got areas and sensitive areas, you know, whether it's the coolie type of, you know, regions uh, where we've got some really good hills and rolling hills. And, uh, and then we've got some pretty sensitive watersheds that are even on top of karst type of, of soils, uh, which mm-hmm. are almost a fragmented, almost a limestone, which right. are really permeable for stuff for leaching. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, those types of areas are pretty sensitive, uh, and we need to really be careful. Uh, I think we need to, to really take an honest look at what type of agriculture happens there. And, you know, and you can't just set it all aside. However, I think strategically you can place integrated livestock type of systems on these done correctly. And that's where managed grazing can get a bad rap sometimes because a lot of people look back at, at how it was done and they've got visions of, you know, cows living in streams and eroding stream banks. However, right. if it's done correctly and cows are uh, given short periods of time uh, to areas and you're, you're immediately off, uh, they can exponentially increase uh, the productivity uh, and, and decrease the environmental negative environmental impacts uh, around that type of areas. Yeah, it's remarkable. They they can they're like these. They can restore an area too, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they can it done correctly. They can totally restore. You know, even the most sensitive trout streams that are out there, uh, yeah. and you can run livestock near them, uh, mm-hmm. and and have a complete balance where where everything is a lot better as a result. Yeah, it's amazing. So there's so much to learn. I, I, you know, listening to you, I'm like, okay, now I, I, so starting an apprenticeship program to take somebody who's maybe never been on a farm or grew up in a farm and didn't farm this way, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn. Yeah. You know, and as we're designing the program, uh, you know, this is something we pulled together, you know, kind of a focus group of dairy farmers and, um, and industry people uh, to talk about this. And we're like, okay, uh, how long does this need to be? <laughs> and yeah, in all reality, yeah, yeah. you know, there's, there's farmers that are sitting there with 25 years of experience, and they're like, there is no year that's the same. You know, 20 years aren't even enough. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, but you know, that is one reason why you went with a two-year apprenticeship is because we wanted individuals, and they've got to have at least two years in, even if they get the the 4,000 hours in in a year and a half that they're working like crazy, um, mm-hmm. you know, we still want to see two full seasons just to have mm-hmm. a little bit more experience on, you know, how these things can differ. Um, and right. you're always changing, you're always adapting, uh, and uh, the, the weather plays a huge, huge part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so people come into your apprenticeship program that, uh, they, and um, they get the practical experience, they get some training, um, and, and you said in the beginning that you've had some remarkable results of um, people coming out and getting access to farm, farms of their own. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and we've got a huge amount of successes. And, and the successes aren't just from individuals that end up on their own dairy farm uh, mm-hmm. as, as the potential owner of it or working toward ownership. You know, there's successes where individuals are coming in and, you know, taking just a much more engaged management role into a dairy. 
yeah. and and working closer onto the dairy where they want to be. You know, there's successes where people come into this and they realize, I don't want to do this. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah this sounded really, good, really good, but now I realize how hard I'm going to have to work. Yes, and, and, and way better chance to figure that out before you take the big loan out uh, right. to try to buy something or, or try to get involved in it. Uh, so, so, yes, definitely a success. But we do have a few, you know, uh, individuals that have, you know, either, you know, some have been, you know, family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, related, you know, within the family that have uh, worked through the program. And I'm not saying the program is the reason why this all happened. I mean, it's still up to individual people. You're always going to have entrepreneurs that are driven, and they're going to make this happen regardless. You know, right. what we're really trying to do is create that pathway and create more of a systematic way to do this if we can. Right. Uh, because, I mean, the fact of the matter is people have done this on a one-off type of thing. They've figured out how to transition their farms and, and, and bring that next generation in. Uh, we're just trying to create more of a system uh, where it can be replicated more and more. But sure. there is nothing more gratifying than, you know, having an individual that comes on because we've got we we've created a completely integrated cloud-based website to manage the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this website will capture candidates uh, that would like to get into dairy farming, uh, and it'll also be a place for the training farmers that we approve uh, to you know come in and search for candidates, uh, get information about the program. Uh, and it's also a website where, you know, we can kind of track the progress of everybody that's signed up in the apprenticeship. So they've got a mm-hmm. dashboard. We know how far into the program they are. They can, we know how much related instruction they've taken uh, and, and, and how the whole process is going. But, uh, but when you can get somebody that comes into the website or sees us at a career fair from either a college or a technical college or wherever it may be, uh, and finds a farmer uh, that they had never known before uh, and does an apprenticeship with them and starts to work with that farmer and builds this bond and begins earning equity and creates an actual transition plan where they're working into that farm and they now own cattle and equipment and they're working into an actual succession plan on that dairy. That's a pretty cool thing when you can see yeah. some of that stuff happen. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think um, you know, given the number of farmers that are are going to retire in the next um, decade or so, um, I think a lot of people have been trying to figure out how the heck we can get farm transitions to happen, and um, you know, especially third party, you know, somebody's not a family member. Um, so this this path is is it, it's really exciting to hear, you know, about transitions that are happening. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. definitely. So, so, um, your, so you have all these ecosystems, I'm going to call them ecosystem services that these grazing farms, um, do, you know, people talk about regenerative agriculture, but I'm not sure that people understand how, um, ecologically, I don't know what I want to say. I, I kind of feel like dairy grazing farms are, the, are gold standard regenerative farms, you know, and, and I'm not sure that people in the regenerative movement even understand that. 
Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I agree. You know, we, as, as we look at the regenerative movement, and I just, you know, there was another uh, webinar that came out today, too, on integrating, you know, some livestock, uh, you know, into uh, cropping type of systems. And, and that's, that's great. Absolutely great, because I think regenerative does recognize and understand the importance of the integration of livestock into our cropping right. system. Right. Uh, the reality is, I, I'm afraid, and where this is what we're trying to to change, is that I think a lot of people are missing the potential of dairy. I mean, yeah. dairy is the gold standard. I mean, this is really this is utilizing land to raise livestock in mm-hmm. the most regenerative way possible. So, integration of livestock is not a subset of the main management system. It is the system. Yeah, uh, yeah. So if we can figure out ways, you know, to scale that uh, on a systems type of platform, that's where we can really make some ground here in regards to, you know, climate, environment, uh, even rural systems and rural prosperity. And, right. and those are some of the bigger pictures that we look at DGA as being the stepping stone to because all of these things, before you can make a big systems change, it's about people. You right. need to find the people and, and, and empower the people and allow them the platform to do it. So mm-hmm. once you have that and once you've got that type of platform, now you can really start talking about, um, you know, making these systems type changes and addressing some of these issues. Right, right. And so that and that's a great segue into what you guys have been working on more recently of trying to figure out ways to um, well, it's it's a combination of things, right? It's part, partly it is to help with transitions um, and ownership transitions, but but partly it is to figure out ways to scale up the model of grazing, if that makes sense. But do it in a in an ecologically sensitive way, right? So the solution isn't just a thousand cow grazing dairies, right? Correct, correct, correct. You know that yes, that that's really some of the work you know that we're pressing forward on here now uh, and looking at, and it's always been in the back of our minds here too uh, to create this. But there there's an incredible amount of opportunity out there uh, right now within and especially within this managed grazing type of system and integrated livestock systems. Uh, And these are opportunities to address some of our biggest challenges that are out there. Uh, And that is everything from rural development uh, to nutrient-dense foods uh, to processing and distribution systems uh, to climate and soil and water and our environments. Uh, these are all things that, in all reality, we can address with managed grazing. Right. And, you know, with independent type of farms, uh, where yeah. the land base is matched a lot closer to what the livestock carrying capacity is. Mm-hmm. And, and those are just very, very key things. So, you know, given what managed grazing can do, I think if we can figure out, and this is what we're working on, on how to scale this on a systems approach uh, through all of these levels, that's where the real opportunities are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I love the fact that you're bringing up rural communities, too, because um, 
it's crazy to drive through Iowa, and, and I used to say that it was so different in Wisconsin, and it's becoming that, like Iowa, where whole towns, schools have closed, towns have closed, like literally died, because the, you know, they do pigs in Iowa, right? And it's all, it's industrial, right? So people don't own their farms the way they used to. Small communities don't exist when those farmers are just part of a big industrial system. So the decline of the rural communities is associated with the, with the industrialization of agriculture. Absolutely. The banking system, definitely, I think it's, it's very much on their radar. Uh, on you know climate change and systems and just the risk profile of their lending, uh, so mm-hmm. it definitely definitely is, and and these are some of the solutions that that we need to look at, you know. So it, and and as we look at it, you know these are things, and uh, when when we look at our agriculture and our food system and and how large it is, I mean, like you say, it it is incredibly large. It is efficient. <laughs> Uh, and it's a bit impenetrable when you think about it as far as, you know, changing that ship if you need to and changing the course of it. Uh, however, I think we need to look at it from a different level and, and look at it as the opportunities. Uh, and when we look at the climate issues that are going on in the interest of not only uh, consumers but of uh, processors, and food systems, and most of our industries, I don't care if it's textile or manufacturing or what, all looking at their footprint and their sustainability footprint and going net zero by 2030, 2040, 2050. I think this offers a huge opportunity for managed grazing and integrated livestock type of agricultural systems to come in and be the solutions of that. Uh, And the other reality is there's going to be huge economies built around this. I mean, these are estimated, you know, tens of trillions of dollars over the next several decades. You know, why can't rural communities come in and offer the solutions to it in thinking more carbon, in cleaning more water, in creating more business and, and entrepreneurial-type business, uh, in creating more food systems, which will address many of these environmental type of services uh, that there's going to be such a demand and such a need for? And can we revitalize rural communities by harnessing that and bringing it into, you know, these areas uh, through our agricultural systems? And, and these are a lot of the pieces that we're really trying to line up. And, and although it looks like it's a huge task, and it is, but, you know, underneath the big umbrella of the large systems that we have in place, you know, the bigger that umbrella and the bigger that system gets, the more air there is underneath to operate these types of things. Uh, so really all we need, and it's getting out there and, and it's coming to it, is we need innovative finance that's looking at this and saying, yeah, we need to de-risk. We need to de-risk our loan profile and our exposure. Uh, and we need to slice some innovative capital into integrated livestock systems to look at this. And then we need some processing in there that's going to say in some market systems that are going to say the consumer really wants a different profile. You know, they want consumer goods and they want a food product that's coming from X type of 
a farm that is contributing to communities, to environment, to climate, uh, that is maybe even looking at a different type of a regional processing and distribution type of a system. And it is delivering a very nutrient-dense product. So as long as we've got a processing system that says there is the opportunity for that and we've got a consumer that wants it, and then if we've got a training system that can train up the farmers to do this, uh, you can line all of this up and almost create regional type of resets on how our food is produced uh, and really offer some solutions uh, to you know some of the, the markets, the businesses, uh, the environmental issues that we've got coming up. Yeah, and what I like so much about dairy grazing is it's a system, at the farm level anyway, it's, it's up and running, right? And it's a, it's a system that is already um, pretty resilient in, on so many levels, right? So, so the, the, what's lovely about this is it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel. The wheel already exists. Um, and we have to work on the processing component. We have to work on the financial, you know, getting the financial community to step up with some I'll call it appropriate capital, right? That that recognizes some of the um, some of the specific needs of the industry, and and we also do need the consumer to better under and and the whole regenerative movement to better understand managed grazing, um, because you know its potential contribution to this. Because I, as I said before, I don't think the regenerative community really gets it. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah there, there's definitely systems to line up uh, to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. But like I say, I think that's, that's where the huge opportunity is. You know, I sat and, you know, I watched, you know, this weekend, I think a number of seen this is, I mean, they just launched SpaceX, uh, right. you know, travel, you know, space travel for, you know, the, the, the consumer uh, mm-hmm. for, you know, privatized. If we can line up the type of capital, the visionaries, uh, and and realize the consumer at the end of that to build that type of a system, if we could line up half that capital and half that interest to rethink how managed grazing and, and our food system can look with dairy, we could do this. Yeah. And, and I guess that's what I look at. I, it, it isn't unsurmountable, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but there is a systems effort to come in uh, that I think can be lined up and, yeah. and accomplish this. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. So, so DGA has has done so much great work in helping. You know, what did you say? You're in 15 states already. Correct. Yeah, yeah. So you're in 15 states already, um, and now you're working on this bigger, looking at you know the bigger systems approach and systems changes. Tough. I mean. Yeah, but you know, one thing at a time, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, DGA can keep the you know leading the charge here for dairy grazing because I don't really see there's. I mean, that's another thing about dairy grazing. There really isn't another organization that has a national footprint that is really promoting dairy grazing. Or am I missing something? Um. No. You know. I. You know. Uh, not necessarily, there really isn't necessarily, you know, right. um, 
you know, I think we're, we've got, we're kind of positioned uh, where we've got some of the opportunities that we can build out of uh, dairy yeah. grazing apprenticeship because of the footprint uh, and because of our alignment with the great farmers that we have out there that are in the program, as well as some alignments with some administrative partners, you know, some other NGOs, nonprofits, and, and even university work that's out there uh, where we're able to, you know, leverage this system uh, as, you know, the, the, the boots on the ground that can really work on making something, something happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's wonderful. So, um, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. I always say that, but, but now with your, you know, cause we're talking about managed grazing, that's really apt. Um, what, what have we missed? Well, you know, I, I don't know if we, we missed a ton, you know, we, you know, we really <laughs> talked about, you know, these impacts that, that managed yeah. grazing can have. And, you know, it, it's hard to think of a management system that has so many of the answers. Right. Uh, but the reality of it uh, is that it does. You know, the answers it doesn't have yet is how to scale this thing. You know, how mm-hmm. to sell it and, and, and keep it rolling and build the industry around it. And, and those are really the voids that we're trying to pull together here. And actually right now we're trying to pull it together. You know, right. so we're really getting out there and trying to align with the right finance, you know, whether it is impact type of investment to, to model some of this out, you know, or whether it is conventional type of, of investment or, or, or whatever it may be. Uh, and we're really trying to work with uh, some of the, the processing and the consumer market system say, okay, you know, what would it take? What do you need? What would it take to kind of model these things out and develop it? So, so we're also, you know, trying to work with uh, individuals or entities that can really try to model out and create our value proposition. You know, what is the actual value of these types of farms uh, as they sit alongside of, you know, sourcing product from other types of farms? You know, what is and, and these are tough things to do. You know, what is the real dollar value uh, that needs to be realized or could be realized on the farm val- on the farm level, uh, you know, for a system like this? Uh, and, and it's whether it's a dollar value coming in from actual environmental type of services, uh, soil, water, uh, phosphorus, uh, or whether it's dollar value coming in from impact for the financial institution and de-risking the financial institution, uh, or whether it's a dollar value coming in from the consumer end where they want to see a product being sustainably sourced uh, and defining sustainability by, you know, carbon, water, soil, uh, finance, uh, or even defining sustainability by what the business structure looks like. Mm-hmm. And in the ability for entrepreneurship, uh, for individuals to potentially own the land uh, and solutions to that land ownership, uh, and do they realize and define sustainability by having a system where knowledge can be transitioned down from generation to generation, where you truly have a seven-generation succession plan? Uh, and are they able to realize that in the marketplace where that type of dollars that may be pulled in can find their way down to the farm level uh, and make these farms a bit more profitable also? 
Right, right. Things like carbon credits. Um, and, you know, I, there are communities like Dane County here in Wisconsin is an example where our municipal wastewater treatment facility is starting to pay um, um, farmers for adopting practices that reduce phosphorus runoff. Because if they don't, if we could keep it from running off of farms, then um, MMSD doesn't have to deal with so much, right? So there's, there's, this is one of those ecosystem services payments that, that can help, you know, accelerate um, the transformation of farms into not just producing food, but providing really valuable solutions for our environment. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and and you know if if uh, a managed grazing farmer, an independent family farmer, a bit of a smaller scale, you know where they've got. Uh, basically the land base, which is a lot more aligned to the actual animal base uh, and, and number of animals there, if they can all of a sudden, you know, not only realize and have a customer of not just the people that are eating the product uh, and, and buying the product, but also a customer in the people that want to see ecosystems uh, services uh, and and address climate type of issues and environmental issues and and rural development issues uh, and land succession issues, uh, that's a win-win uh, because now that's what helps keep that egg of the middle, that smaller farmer more viable uh, because what they're doing is unique uh, and it's recognized for the value that they're providing. And, and if we can start realizing those types of systems where it gets right down to the farm level and those types of economics, uh, that's where we're going to really start making some ground here. And I think we've got some opportunities are aligning with all the realization and the conversations all the way through business and through, you know, our, our industries uh, about the importance of climate and, and our ecosystems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, it's, it's um, the other thing I got to say about dairy grazers, Ed, is they all – love their farms like they the lifestyle of dairy grazing is also something that I have to I, I mean I've yeah I just when there are surveys that have been done all kinds of things right it's it's also just a beautiful place to live well absolutely and and, and if you really want to take a look at who's gonna you know not that land is is not taken care of by by farmers right. uh, but the people that are for sure going to take the best care of it are the ones that are truly vested in it and invested. Right. Uh, I mean, these are going to be your best stewards of the land. Uh, mm -hmm. The other thing that happens from this, and we talked about, you know, as, as you mentioned on who needs to realize the importance of, of our food and that, and that's consumers. Uh, the more individuals that we have that have a stake in the land and in food, and the more farmers you have, uh, the more generations of, of children and grandchildren that are closer to the land, uh, mm -hmm. that understand food uh, and food systems. And that's how you build some of that consumer base. And, mm -hmm. and I think as we've seen agriculture get more and more industrialized over the past couple of generations, we are losing those generations that are connected. We're now two, three, four generations away from the home farm. And, and there's a very much of a disconnect you know, within families and those generations away from that farm. And the more people you actually put on the ground 
actively engaged in it and having ownership in it, uh, the more of a consumer base that you're going to have that realizes the, the value of it. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. So, Joe, um, this has been awesome. I think it's been a great way to introduce people to dairy grazing and also to the the work, the amazing work that DGA is doing. And we're going to stay in touch because I um, I bet big things are coming down the pike for DGA. And we'll get you back on the show sometime in the future. That'd be wonderful. I'd, I'd enjoy staying in touch. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. A production of Audio for the Arts.